This is Thinking About OBGYN with your hosts, Antonia Roberts and Howard Harrell. Antonia. Howard. What are we thinking about on today's episode? Well, we're going to lighten things up compared to last episode with all those emergencies and answer a really interesting listener question we got. But first, what's a thing we do for no reason? Well, and bear with me here. I know we can be controversial at times. How about routinely using Rogam or an equivalent product during the first trimester? Okay, yeah. This was another one that was brought up by my residents. So shout outs to Dr. Wade and Dr. Leaf. So yeah, we are supposed to give Rogam or some equivalent anti-D immune globulin at 28 weeks to RH negative mothers. And that's supposed to cover any possible subclinical maternal fetal hemorrhage. And again, we give it after delivery if the newborn's cord blood is RH positive, because at that point, there can be significant maternal exposure to fetal blood, even if the birth was uncomplicated, and it didn't seem like there was much bleeding. But we are also taught to administer it after any sort of event that has even the potential to cause maternal-fetal hemorrhage, and that would include things like external cephalic version, amniocentesis, abdominal trauma in pregnancy, any kind of bleeding really, especially suspected placental abruption. And then as a profession, kind of we've extended that to events in the first trimester as well, so that even women with five-week miscarriages, if they're RH negative, they're getting the same doses of Rogam as women after a term delivery with a placental eruption. And my guess is that most of our listeners do practice this and believe that ACOG recommends it. But before anyone starts firing up their indignant emails, like, why are we challenging this? I will quickly just refer to the ACOG practice bulletin number 118, which states whether to administer anti-D immune globulin to a patient with a threatened pregnancy loss in a live embryo or fetus at or before 12 weeks of gestation is controversial and no evidence-based recommendation can be made, end quote. Well, good. So yeah, just to clear the air, we aren't recommending, and I don't think we ever really do, that's not the point of the show, that you go against any ACOG recommendations. But in this case, we're just pointing out that they don't actually have one if you thought that they did. So we need to understand the science a bit about this issue so we can make up our mind because ACOG is not directive in this regard. So that means we have to be thoughtful. This is one of those things that people may forget is really not a solid recommendation. And people probably tend to err on the side of giving it just in case that patient with the five-week miscarriage could get alloimmunized, for example, un- until such a time that they might hear a more definitive recommendation not to do it. I agree with that for sure. People are much more comfortable erring on the side of doing something than on the side of not doing something. And again, that's that therapeutic imperative that we talk a lot about, especially if the thing that we're doing is viewed as relatively harmless, then why not do it just in case it might help somebody on the margin, on the fringes? But one person's definition of harmless And another ones are completely different things, of course. So I don't assume that tocolytics or betamethasone are harmless. We certainly shouldn't assume that antibiotics are harmless or things like that. And 
we have to talk about Rogam in that regard too. Yeah. And it's kind of like with that five minute surgical hand scrub we talked about previously as, as another thing we do for no reason. When we reviewed the literature that for decades already showed that the evidence hasn't supported it, people continue to do it. And probably from the assumption that there's no harm in scrubbing your hands for five minutes. And that must still be at least as good as using those rapid surgical hand sterilizer things. And of course, besides that, it's still deeply culturally embedded that everyone stands outside the sink with their with their sponge and chats a little bit before they go in there and dry their hands and get gowned up. So until someone tells people not to do it, they're going to probably continue to keep doing it. And I think really the only people who jumped on skipping the five-minute surgical scrub when when the evidence came out that it, it's not really that helpful are those people with dainty and sensitive skin that starts to burn and crack from that vigorous hand scrubbing. Well, there's no shame in being a delicate flower. I too tend to be on the skin delicate <laughs> side. But in this case, especially because it's actually best practice. So the 2023 Association of Perioperative Room Nurses, or AORN, it used to be Association of Operative Room, and then they put perioperative and they capitalized the O in the middle. Anyway, AORN, they released their new guidelines for perioperative practice, and it changes the recommendation for surgical hand washing this year. So hurrah. I don't know if they listened to the podcast or not, but they are finally recommending against the five-minute scrub, against any use of that brush whatsoever, and stating that a simple wash with a betadine sponge or with the alcohol-based prep is what's recommended. And they specifically recommend against the brush and the longer scrub times because they can lead to skin breakdown and increase bacterial shedding. So they no longer recommend the five-minute scrubs because they recognize that that increases skin breakdown and dermatitis and overall higher levels of bacterial shedding. So this is an area where I would say the evidence has been there for a very long time, but the professional organizations are just now catching up with those evidence-based articles. Now the question will be, of course, how long will it take for all those plastic scrub brushes and the five-minute washes to go away from the operating rooms in the United States? And I'll bet that you won't see a noticeable difference in the use of those things for a very long time. I guess they can still use those sponges if they want and still be in line with this new guideline. Because I thought that the plastic brushes on the other side of the sponge were only supposed to be used for the nails anyway, but the package instructions are not really clear. So I guess I wouldn't be surprised if there's people out there running those plastic bristles up and down their fingers and arms every day and just ripping up their skin. I've seen it. Yeah. That's just skin crawl to think about. But yeah, that's the thing. It probably takes like a structured quality improvement project to change the local practices for something like this when the new evidence comes out and someone's already halfway through their career and they've always been doing it one way. And those kinds of projects are less likely to be done, I would think, for something that only marginally benefits because quality improvement projects take a lot of time and money and effort. So I'm not necessarily betting on seeing any new rigorous studies come out either about surgical hand washing or about our actual thing we do for no reason, which is the Rogam under 12 weeks. Yeah, there's no one going to be crying tears over these two issues. So things just continue. But we can get back to this. There, there really has never been any evidence 
that anti-D-immunoglobulin, or ROGAM, was useful for preventing RH alloimmunization in the context of bleeding or miscarriages or abortions that occur during the first trimester, or even for ectopic pregnancies. It was just extended into the first trimester arena by extrapolating data from what we knew in the second and third trimesters and assuming that it would apply at least at some extent to the first trimester as well. This is what I call therapeutic drift, and it's particularly encouraged by the manufacturers and early adopters of a new intervention. People get really passionate about it, and they see it work in one context, and then they think, well, it must work in the context right next to that one. The original product was sold by Ortho, a famous birth control manufacturer, and they certainly marketed it in the late 60s and early 70s and pushed for it in any episode of spotting or bleeding at any gestational age whatsoever. And that gave them, of course, as broad an indication for use as possible, and they sold more of it. Well, it's easier to use something really broadly when it's a really safe product and there's really no downsides to using it in more than when you really need to. And I don't think anyone's denying the safety of Rogam. I think it's true that we don't really know of a single adverse event ever from Rogam except for injection site soreness, maybe. So it's easy to really not see any downsides of overuse. Yeah, for sure. I mean, this is a product where there, as you said, there aren't many downsides. And even when you read about potential complications, they're really just theoretical, like potential spread of prion diseases you see sometimes in articles. We don't think it's ever happened, but in theory, we're not doing the right filtration for it. We don't know how to identify it. So it could happen that a prion disease was transmitted through Rogam. We do need to remember that this is a human blood product, but despite that, it's so safely collected and processed and filtrated that we know of no case, not one ever, of a communicable disease being transmitted by using this product. Yeah. So if it's really that safe, then why even test anyone for blood type? Why not just give it to everyone? And that way you would be sure to cover all the RH negative moms. Well, I know you're being rhetorical when you ask me that <laughs> yeah. question. But yeah, I mean, the question is fair. Where is the line? We have to draw one somewhere. So the downsides of overutilization, apart from prion diseases, include things like increasing cost with diminishing return on your investment, if you will, and also potentially creating shortages that could harm patients who really need the drug because the drug is not available, especially something like this that does come from a finite pool of donors. And that's not theoretical, by the way. A few years ago, there was an international shortage of this product due to overutilization and changing resources and availability. In some countries and in some areas, the ethics of saving it for patients who were most at risk was being debated and considered as a mitigating strategy. And some people felt it was unethical to withhold it from anyone who might benefit, whereas others felt like we should ration this to those who would most benefit first. And I think that's the right perspective. I tend to agree with that. But if you want to save some supplies of the medication and for the people who really need it, an easy thing to do is stop wasting it in the first trimester when we don't have evidence that it's beneficial. The principle of medical justice does mean that if you take from one place or one group of people to give to another, then you may be harming that one group. So you have to be balancing the harms, but there's only so much money that can be spent. So we can't just be wasting it for no effect when we have limited resources. So it's true. In some studies, there has been fetal expression of D-antigen discovered as soon as 
38 days from fertilization, which is about seven and a half weeks. And I understand the argument that hypothetically that sensitization could happen that early because we know it can take as little as 0.1 mLs of fetal blood exposure or up to 30 mLs to actually cause the maternal sensitization against the D antigen. And if a new a newborn baby has blood volume of about 125 mLs per keg, I'm not sure if it's the same ratio throughout their entire fetal life, including the first trimester, but if we assumed that it is, then 0.1 mLs would correspond to the full blood volume of a 0.8 gram fetus. And a fetus probably weighs that much, if not more, by seven and a half weeks. And it was actually kind of hard to find, like, what does the average seven and a half week fetus weigh? I found quotes from anywhere between like one gram to 20 grams or something. So it's it probably is about there. So yeah, theoretically, during the course of a miscarriage or ectopic at seven and a half weeks or beyond, that fetus could lose its entire blood volume into the maternal circulation and expose the mother to all those blood antigens. So yes, theoretically that could happen. But in practice, I, I don't think there's ever been a case reported of maternal alloimmunization before 12 weeks. So clinically, it just has not been proven to be something that happens. And even if it did, it would be just probably really rare. And not to mention that about 95% of miscarriages happen before six weeks. So they happen before any of this could even even be expressed, let alone all all pass through the placenta all into the maternal bloodstream. So really before that seven and a half weeks, there's not even a theoretic basis for benefit of giving Rogam. I did find one case report of a purported first trimester exposure being the case or the cause of alloimmunization. But I'll say that in that case report, it really is just not clear. It's basically they couldn't really find a reason And that was sort of the only thing in there. It wasn't empirically proven, just in case someone challenges about not even a case report. But it's sort of a very weak case report. And again, it would be one out of millions of pregnancies. So an exceedingly rare event about which there's a lot of uncertainty. I'll put a link. This is not new, by the way, this idea that we're overutilizing it. I'll put a link to a survey that was done in 2002 that at the time found that the majority of OBs and family docs who practice obstetrics, they were giving Rogam inappropriately in the views of the survey writers for threatened early miscarriages because there was no evidence at the time suggesting benefit. And I'll put another link to a literature review from around that time from 2006, which kind of looked at what we knew up until then and indicated that use in the first trimester wasn't evidence-based. And finally, I'll post a more recent systematic review from 2022, which again brings us up to date on the literature that's out there and concludes that there's no evidence suggesting that we need to do testing or treatment of RH status for pregnancy losses or abortions in the first trimester. And this becomes increasingly important today when you realize that a lot of abortion care is being handled remotely with telehealth or via mail order with people being mailed the pills. This is going to raise a lot of new questions and criticisms for the practice, including whether or not we're affecting the rates of alloimmunization 
by not doing routine blood testing and then administering Rogam at the time of abortion. But at least for this issue alone, the evidence seems to be fairly clear that testing and treatment is not necessary under 12 weeks. And of course, mail-order abortions would be limited to some time before that. And in fact, I'll put a link to the current guideline from the Society of Family Planning, which says that we don't need to do testing. Definitively says we don't need to, you shouldn't do testing or administration of Rogam before 12 weeks. So there's a guideline for you. So after reviewing all this literature about the benefits of Rogam or the lack of benefit of Rogam, rather, do you feel bad at all about criticizing Ina Mae Gaskin in the last episode for what she said about how she didn't believe that antenatal Rogam was scientific? You're vicious. (laughs) Well, no, I don't. Not at all. In fact, the evidence says that use of Rogam empirically just giving it to all RH negative moms at 28 weeks for if they're RH negative, which I think is the thing she was criticizing in that text that we read. But that practice reduces the risk of alloimmunization from around 2%. That's all those incidental things not associated with the delivery itself that you mentioned, subclinical hemorrhages and stuff. But it reduces it from 2% of those women to 0.2%. So for every 1,000 women that you give the 28-week shot to empirically, 18 of those women will be spared from having a subsequent pregnancy affected by RH disease. The people who probably forget how bad RH disease was historically just because of how well Rogam works. We almost never see it anymore in developed countries, but it basically causes severe fetal anemia in utero. And if the fetus doesn't die before birth, Well, some can be basically born immediately requiring CPR and intensive care due to severe anemia in the sequelae of that, and then die in the newborn period if they don't immediately receive a blood transfusion. That's especially jarring for someone who didn't know anything was even wrong with their pregnancy because they didn't have access to testing for blood types or availability to even know about this, or perhaps because they refused the testing and weren't prepared for the consequences. In terms of preventable deaths, it is to me, absolutely ludicrous to deny the value of antenatal Rogam and instead sort of just gamble on the hope hope you don't have that sort of tragic outcome for your baby because this is almost entirely preventable. And considering how inexpensive it is, and again, no reported side effects of the shot in question, well, that's the biggest no-brainer of all in medicine and obstetrics to me. It's just that those Same numbers simply aren't true for the first trimester, which we've been discussing. Then we do have to consider that the risk of using it in those early pregnancies is overutilization and increased cost and potential drug shortages, which might affect somebody who needs the medicine. Okay, fair enough. So we'll still hold that against Ina Mae Gaskin. So in reviewing some of this literature, it is also fascinating to see the distribution of RH negative blood types worldwide in different populations. In North American, especially whites or European whites, it's about 15%, whereas it's about half that in African Americans and about a third of that in Africans. And in Japanese and Thai and Chinese people, it's about 0.3%, so a, a huge difference. But The highest incidence in the world is among Basque people, so so in Europe, and that's about 33%. So that's every third person. And I mentioned that only because you might find different recommendations for practice in different countries based on 
what the incidence of Rh negative mothers are. So you can imagine that maybe in China, for, where for so long they strictly enforced the one-child policy, maybe Rogam wouldn't make as much sense because they already have such a low incidence of even having it. And then supposedly no plans for a second baby, even if there was an Rh negative mom and then she did get alloimmunized. But that being said, even at least in Japan, I don't know about in China, even with such a low incidence, they still administer Rogam empirically at 28 weeks and after delivery, depending on the cord blood. And they still are very well versed in how to treat fetal RH incompatibility. Yeah. And you imagine if you are that Japanese woman who has RH negative blood, there's a 99.7% chance that the father of the baby's RH positive. So in some ways it's rarer, but even more important, if you will. But even with management options, which include things like intrauterine transfusion in the case of RH disease, it can still be devastating. And before transfusion was available, it was, like I said, it was almost universally fatal. And women would have a first pregnancy unaffected, as you said, like a Chinese woman might in her first pregnancy, doesn't matter. Because almost all of these immunization events happen during the first pregnancy. So she might get lucky and have two children in some cases before becoming alloimmunized. Maybe the second baby happens to be Rh negative, for example. But once she was alloimmunized, if she had future children with Rh positive blood, then her antibodies will attack that blood and destroy it, leading to anemia and Rh disease of the fetus with, in many cases, lethal levels of anemia. And eventually this goes through what's called hydrops fatalis and death. So the best you could hope for was that this happened late enough in pregnancy that a newborn was somehow born alive, but still profoundly sick and needing blood transfusions and all that. But without modern medicine and modern neonatal intensive care and blood transfusions, this just never really went well. I assume you have a historical tidbit (laughs) about this that we could segue into. I do. You know (laughs) I do. You know this. Well, yeah, so most even casual observers of European history know something about Henry VIII. He had multiple wives and multiple famous attempts at producing a male heir to the throne. So a lot of historians have developed a lot of different theories about why he had such poor reproductive success. But there are two theories that I think are pretty solid medically, and we may not ever be able to distinguish between the two, but both of them involve classic stories of alloimmunization. The question between the two theories is only whether it was RH alloimmunization or some other less common and perhaps less preventable antigen. Yeah, right, because there are dozens of rare family blood types that can potentially lead to this same problem. But fortunately, they're rare enough that we very rarely see them. And much more rarely do we see any disease from them. Yeah, that's right. There's like a 100 plus different ones that are potentially clinically meaningful. Okay, well, let me start with the simple theory first, which I kind of like. So the simple theory involves Henry's second wife, Anne Boleyn. So recall that he was married first to Catherine of Aragon for a long time, for 23 years. And they did have a Queen Mary as a child, the future queen. Queen Mary was their child and a whole bunch of history there. But the marriage was eventually annulled. I guess you can do that after 23 years if you're the king, because Catherine never produced a living male heir for him. Now, Catherine had a daughter that was stillborn in her first pregnancy, then a son named Henry, who died at about six weeks old, then two subsequent pregnancies that were both sons and both born stillborn, but far enough along that you could identify them as male newborns. 
Then finally, she bore Mary, who did become Queen of England, and after that, another daughter, who was another stillbirth. But eventually, Henry moved on to Anne Boleyn after he had an affair with her sister. It's complicated. I think they made a Netflix series. I'm not sure. She was pregnant when he married her, and that first pregnancy went well. And Anne gave birth to Elizabeth, who would become Queen Elizabeth I of England. But of course, they were disappointed that it was a girl. They were a bit sexist in those days. So of course, they kept trying for a son after that. Now, she had at least two, and most historians think three subsequent pregnancies, all of which resulted in miscarriages that, again, were developed enough that you could tell the sex of the child. So these aren't first trimester miscarriages. These are probably mid-trimester or even early third trimester fetal demises that that she bore. So in other words, the type of second or perhaps third trimester later pregnancy loss that you might see with alloimmunization. By this time, Henry was moving on to yet another woman, Jane Seymour. And in typical fashion, he accused Anne of doing what he was doing, which was cheating on her. That was his excuse for getting rid of her. And he had her found guilty and executed her and all of her potential purported lovers at the Tower of London. So you can see from that why people would speculate that Anne might have had RH negative blood and Henry was RH positive. So this typical pattern, the first pregnancy was a healthy, normal pregnancy. Everything went fine, but she might have become alloimmunized in that pregnancy. And then that meant that each of her subsequent pregnancies, then the two or three that she might have had after that, would have resulted in some sort of mid-trimester or early third trimester loss due to full severe anemia and these hydropic fetuses. And in the days before 1968, when Rogan was first administered, these sorts of pregnancy stories were very common. You have family members or grandparents that they knew people who had this kind of repetitive pattern of pregnancy loss due to RH disease. It just seems a little bit, a little bit too much of a coincidence that Henry, which he statistically, he probably was RH positive, but that he would go for two RH negative women in a row. But it seems like he's the common denominator here because that pattern carried across all of his wives of having late miscarriages. So are there any other theories besides alloimmunization? Well, that gets to the more complicated theory. So you're right. A lot of people are like, yeah, okay, that makes sense for Anne Boleyn, but wait a minute. There's a whole pattern here that goes beyond Anne. And so we understood RH disease a long time ago, and some of these historical theories are a bit dated. But there is a different thing that's much newer that very detailed paper I'll put a link to goes to explain. So again, yeah, if you look at it just from Anne Boleyn's perspective, RH disease accounts for everything. But if you think about Henry, well, he had six wives. So Anne of Cleves and Catherine Parr, apparently he never impregnated them. So he had four women that he had children with. And as I said, with Catherine of Aragon, out of six pregnancies, the first wife, only Queen Mary survived birth or infancy. And then with Anne, it was one of, we think, four pregnancies. And then she moved on to Jane Seymour, and he did finally get a male heir, King Edward. But she also did have at least one miscarriage. And with Catherine Howard, he had another miscarriage. So it seems like he was about three for 13, and two of those three were female. I also say, who knows if if King Edward was actually Henry's son. I mean, there probably was a lot of infidelity on both parts. And so we don't really know how many bastard children he might have had by other women. There's none other that have ever been confirmed. But, you know, this is the supposed legitimate heirs to him. But 
What if he had a blood antigen that he was passing on to the children that was being attacked by each of these mother's blood and causing these problems? So a lot of scholarly work's been done to argue that he actually had the Kell antigen. Oh, yes. And we say Kell kills. and Kell yeah. kills. Lewis lives. Yeah. And yeah, that would make a lot of sense, actually, because, yeah, it would be unusual for all of those wives to have been Rh negative when they didn't even know about testing for that. And, you know, when only 15% of the population theoretically should be Rh negative. And I don't think any of them were Basque. Yeah, exactly. This was in England. And yeah, the Kell antigen does create a very similar pregnancy outcome as fetal Rh incompatibility disease. And it also can spare the first pregnancy. But why Kell and not any number of other rare but also potent antigens? Well, this is the really interesting part. So Kell is often, very often related to something called McLeod syndrome, which is an X-linked recessive disease with neurocognitive symptoms that tend to start developing in the middle age. And it also has effects on the liver and other internal organs that become worse as you age. So if you look at how Henry's own neurocognitive and psychiatric sort of case file changed throughout his life, people talk about two Henrys, one of his youth and one of his older age, and also just the change in his physique and health and all that. It all really does fit quite beautifully with McLeod syndrome. And if he had the Kell antigen, then it would explain both his own developmental and psychiatric changes and decline as he aged, as well as his inability to produce particularly male offspring because it does have an X-linked pattern. So I'll put a link to this article that goes through all this in quite some detail if you're a history buff. It's like 20 pages, though. Well, that King Henry did seem pretty crazy, but... Yeah, let's move on. So we because we did have this interesting question from a listener that that we want to talk oh, about. Not a, not a death threat. Not a death threat. This we're one moving act- up. We're moving up. <laughs> he actually seems to be a fan. So he asked us why babies tend to be born in greater numbers on certain days of the week and also certain months of the year. Well, let's do it. All right. So our listener friend understands the phenomenon of babies being born most commonly on weekdays. So for example, the least likely day to be born is Sunday. The next least likely is a Saturday. I was born on a Saturday, by the way. And then there's a pretty big gap after that. Then there's Monday. And I was born on a Monday. There you go. And then... Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, they're all about the same frequency there. So but so they're all more frequent than the week than Saturday and Sunday. And I think that'll make sense soon here as we explain a bit more. Well, yeah, I mean it's obvious that we don't like working on weekends, right? I mean it's rare that any sort of elective scheduled delivery is going to be for a Saturday or a Sunday, and enough deliveries nowadays are elective that it would obviously skew the statistics quite a bit. Midweek deliveries tend to be the most convenient for docs because a lot of them book four-day weeks, so they may take Monday off and or Friday off. And you don't really want to do deliveries on Friday because you might have to round on them on Saturday or even Sunday. 
So Tuesday and Wednesday ends up being really prime time. And as you said, Tuesday is the most common day and Wednesday the second most common. But then if they're not delivered by the end of the week and you've used up all of your scheduling capacity and things like that, you certainly want to get them done before Saturday hits. So Thursday and Friday then become third and fourth most common days. So yeah, that's just all due to us scheduling them. Yeah. And you can even look at the time of day for when deliveries occur. As you can imagine, at least for cesareans, a lot of them occur between 4 and 7 p.m. if they're not occurring as like the scheduled C-sections at 8 or 10 a.m. Because in those evening ones, it's usually a woman that's in labor. She's been induced or maybe augmented and the doctor's done with clinic and wants to go home and is just done watching this labor and it this C-section happens. Well, for what it's worth, I was a C-section on the morning on Saturday, so I don't think it was the doctor wanting to just go home out of convenience, but my mom was pushing for three hours and I was persistent OP. So there, there was still a reason there, I think. Well, I was a scheduled section Monday afternoon after clinic. So hmm. doctors, doctor scheduling does take a lot of priority. And I'm yeah. not saying that that's a good thing. We're joking a little bit, but you know, if doctors disadvantage women and increase their risks of C-sections based on their own schedule, then that's a problem and shame on them. But yeah, I'll include the graphs that our kind listener, friend of the show, Dennis from CDC, that showed the rates for, particularly for holidays throughout the year. And the same explanations would follow. So like Christmas, does even worse than Sunday because no one wants to work on Christmas and no one really wants their baby born on Christmas either. That whole present sharing thing sucks. We've also seen this happen for a long time with September 11th. So like the 10th and the 12th are way more common where people were just avoiding that particular day in the United States if they had a choice over it. I do think that's going away. In the last few years, I haven't had people ask about that anymore. But also the other holidays, less common days are Thanksgiving and New Year's Day and Christmas Eve. And again, that all makes sense. We're shutting down the units and staffing them with minimal people so people can be with their families. People want the days off. So you're not really going to get anything elective done there. On the other hand, though, Valentine's Day ends up being very popular because we often do have to work on that day. It's not a federal holiday or anything like that. And people kind of like the idea that their baby might be born on the holiday of love. So that one ends up being a very popular birthday by contrast. Yeah. And I bet Valentine's Day and nine months after Valentine's Day. But yeah, so December 25th, that's really the least common birthday, at least in the United States, followed by New Year's and Christmas Eve, and then July 4th as well. It's federal holidays. And then also, I think the 13th of each month tends to be a little less common than the 12th or the 14th, which probably shows some superstition of being afraid that the number 13 is going to mean they're, they're going to be unlucky and their delivery is going to go badly or something. But our listener was actually more interested in our commentary about seasons. So why does it seem like more babies are born in the late summer or early fall? And September does seem to be on average the peak season for babies to be born in the US. And so really, so Valentine's Day is the most common birthday of the year until you get to June. And then birth rates really peak in September overall, like throughout the whole month. And I think when people talk about this phenomenon, which probably every L&D nurse is painfully aware of, 
they like to think back, subtract nine months, and then kind of a running joke is something like, oh, that New Year's party, right? Or it was cold and near the holidays, people were feeling more cozy and amorous, I guess, with their little fireplace and less outdoor activities. So I guess they conceive more babies. But is that really, is it really that simple? So our friend, this listener, Dr. Telson, by the way, he told us he trained in Cuba and he pointed out that this is equally true in Cuba where the cold weather at least is not a factor. Although maybe the holidays still, people get a certain feeling around then, but it's not that they're staying in because of the cold. So he just wanted to see, do we have any other kind of population level thoughts about this? Well, the explanation about cold weather and holiday spirit, I'm sure contributes. It has to contribute something. But yeah, it's a little too easy to explain all of it. One could speculate that the holidays remind us of family, bring folks together, make them contemplative of starting or growing their own families. And I'm sure that's enough of a trigger for a lot of people. But it certainly can't be the whole explanation, or, or I don't even think the primary explanation for what we see. The biggest thing is actually just that women are more fertile in those months. And not just us, but all living organisms have some seasonal predilection for reproduction. Now, this is obvious when you look at plants and trees, and also obvious when you think about certain types of fish or reptiles or mammals that have very confined mating seasons, reproductive seasons. And that, you know, they're bringing their young or their new fauna or flora into life when the conditions are optimal for that life to survive. And they very strictly reproduce in a seasonal manner. Some animals hibernate when they shouldn't be reproducing. But it is generally true, you look at the human literature, that the higher the altitude, the earlier the peak infertility. So in the northern United States, the peak months for births are actually more in June or July, while the further south you go, the peak birth months are more like October or November. It's actually October where I practice in Tennessee. That October and November with June and July just tends to average out to roughly September when you talk about the U.S. as a whole. And of course, there's a band through the middle of the U.S. where September is the most common month. But then September is not the answer for most people. June and November are just as common. And so it's pretty easy and reductionist to just count back nine months and find yourself at Christmas. If you lived in the northern or more cold parts, higher latitude parts of the U.S., then that month would be June. And you'd be asking yourself what was special about the month of October that led to so many deliveries. Maybe Halloween. That candy. Yeah. Well, (laughs) but yeah, if you look around the world, you see a similar pattern for the most part. So I'll bring up Finland. Their peak birth month is late April. So even earlier than the northern United States. And I guess if you go back nine months, that takes you to conception dates in July. And I'd say that's when Finnish people are still enjoying the very rare, amazing weather. But the sun is also starting to go down at night again instead of being 24 hours up. But then in contrast, in Jamaica, their peak birth month is November, also like the southern United States. And that takes you back to nine months back from that is February. So yeah, there's some exceptions to this pattern, but it does seem to be related to geography and probably local customs as well. In Poland, for example, they have, they're very Catholic and they have the traditional July to August wedding season. 
And so lots of conceptions during those July to August wedding nights and their peak birth month is also in the spring, kind of like in Finland. Yeah. So when you take it all together, all that kind of demographic evidence together, it seems that which season your births occur in correlate with how long the day is and with local temperatures, in addition to some things like the very pronounced wedding season of Poland, these cultural things or other events that may shift it a little bit. There are even places with bimodal distributions because they have particular geography that gives them bimodal peaks related to length of day and temperature. So, for example, Greenland has a bimodal distribution. And this effect seems to be more pronounced in rural communities than it is in urban communities, maybe because one thing a big city does is make you less dependent upon your local environment and the length of the day is less affected. It's less natural in a way. There's lots of artificial light, the day, the city never sleeps, that kind of thing. So they're less affected by these phenomena than maybe someone who lives in a more agrarian lifestyle might see. So, okay, yeah. So speaking of other animal species, the mammals are divided up into short day and long day breeders. So some animals are more likely to breed in the long summer days. And those are also the ones that tend to have a short gestation. So they will get pregnant and also deliver during the same season of long days. But if you're a creature like a human with longer gestations that cross over multiple seasons, then your body may have more of a ten- tendency to favor conception on those shorter, colder days, whatever it is that would allow you to be pregnant through the harsher, colder winter months and then deliver when the days are warm and longer and, I guess, sa- safer for the baby in terms of are they going to freeze to death or not. So the body would favor having a baby in the summer or early fall. And from an evolutionary biology perspective, this would affect how well your offspring would tend to survive. If you're born in August or September, then the weather is pretty good. It's it's before it's really cold. It's before the cold and flu seasons. It's not super hot like it was in July. The harvest has been gathered. There's plenty of food and those sorts of things. And so nice, pleasant, not extreme weather and plenty of food after the bountiful harvest. So survival of the offspring would be higher in those fall months. People are not consciously thinking about that if they're having sex. And my guess is animals aren't thinking about that either, even though they probably have more pronounced physiologic seasonal cycles to their reproduction than humans do. So I'm not sure we've really answered it specifically yet. We've at least had some fun speculation. Are we Would you say we actually are more fertile in those shorter, colder days? Yeah, I guess we have to be careful here about potentially giving a sort of teleological explanation for this. So there doesn't appear to be, for example, a seasonal difference in ovulation. If you're just looking to see if a woman ovulated, then women tend to ovulate just as well in the winter months as the summer months. But at the same time, it's clear from a lot of recent studies that warmer temperatures are associated with lower antral follicle counts. 
Now, this research has come about as people seek to find possible reproductive consequences of global warming. What does one degree average temperature mean to our follicle counts for our reproductive abilities? So you surely think that if one degree can make a difference, then the seasonal changes would reflect that as well and affect it. And they do. Women have lower antral follicle counts in the summertime. We also know that menstrual cycles tend to be a little shorter in the summer than in the winter. But I'm not sure that helps us, again, understand if or how women might be more fertile in winter months. So several studies have also shown lower FSH levels in the winter than in the summer, but that doesn't necessarily mean less fertility. It may mean, in fact, that ovulation is achieved with lower levels of FSH in the winter months and summer because the body is more prepared or receptive to respond to the hormone when it's present. There's also likely a slight change in the time of day when women ovulate in the winter months versus the summer months, and this may make intercourse more proximal in a favorable way to the timing of ovulation in the winter than it is in the summer. And it also seems to be true that sperm counts are reduced during summer months. This would make the man a little less fertile in the summer months than in the winter months. And finally, it probably is the case that people have more sex in the winter than in, they do in the summer. If it gets dark about five, you tend to go to bed a bit earlier, you wind your day down, but you're still not exhausted. You have a bit more energy. Maybe you feel a little friskier. Then in the summer, when it maybe gets dark at nine and nine o'clock and you've been outside and you're hot and sweaty and you've been working or playing all day and maybe you don't feel like it as much. So there is a seasonal increase in the amount of sex to go along with all those other factors. Okay, well, it's a theory, at least, that men being a little more fertile and women ovulating a little closer to the more typical timing of intercourse, and then also people having intercourse more often, all when the days are shorter and it's maybe colder outside, and then the net effect of that leading to producing offspring in the safer part of the year, at least from an ancient evolutionary perspective. And that's all, if that's true for humans, if, then it's probably true, at least for some other animal species as well. Yeah. I will say that I never knew before today that I was a short day breeder, but (laughs) all of this is slowly going away, this mismatch between when people give birth as people, modern people are deliberately planning and timing their pregnancies more often and more pregnancies result from artificial reproductive technologies. It doesn't care what time of the year it is. And people are just having fewer pregnancies in their lifetime. So you see less of the effect, more birth control, etc. So the magnitude of seasonality has diminished over the last few decades. And I suppose more people are living in urban areas where the effect is blunted compared to rural areas anyway. Yeah. So we'll see if they're even, if these patterns change over time. I mean, we it's not like we we don't have any deliveries to do throughout the year and it's only certain seasons of the year that we work. So, we work throughout the year anyway. And that would be just... neat if we had like 3 months off every year. <laughs> yeah. If nobody no ever had babies for the same yeah. 3 months of the year. Yeah, but yeah, we'll see if it continues to even out or or what. But it's at least kind of a fun question and fun to speculate about it. Before we wrap up, we were just a little bit earlier talking about the situation where women undergo self-managed or telehealth abortions and not receiving Rogam. And that really isn't a concern when it's under 12 weeks, but that there probably are other issues that we might see more of. And in that regard, there actually was 
a case report published in the New England Journal of Medicine from the January 19th issue of the discovery of an ectopic pregnancy after a self-managed abortion. It's not like this was some rare, unheard of case. It was just, I think they were highlighting like this is going to happen more often now with the, the changing laws and patterns of abortion. So in this case report, the patient had gotten mifepristone and mesoprostol on the internet legally, I presume at least for a yeah, pregnancy. Yeah. yeah. So appropriate treatment in an appropriate manner for a pregnancy termination. She took the medicine and then she later came to the emergency department with severe abdominal pain. And long story short, it was a ruptured ectopic pregnancy. I think they went into a bit more detail. Like at first they didn't see any masses. Then they thought- Yeah, they sent her home the first time and then she came back later with it ruptured and sicker. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't think they did a 48 hour repeat HCG in this case. But anyway, ultimately, they it was an ectopic pregnancy. I, I think they, they it wasn't on their radar because they were like, you took abortion pills for an, an abortion, right? So maybe they weren't really thinking ectopic pregnancy. And so yeah, they assumed at first it was a hemorrhagic corpus luteum when it really wasn't. So anyway, the incidence of ectopic pregnancy among women seeking abortion is about 0.7%. And that's lower than the overall baseline incidence of ectopic pregnancy among all pregnancies, that's usually about 2%. But by the time most people are seeking an abortion, by that time, most of their ectopics would have already been discovered and they would no longer be seeking an abortion. They would just be seeking their ectopic treatment. So that leaves still about 0.7% that want an abortion but actually have an ectopic pregnancy. So as more and more of this moves towards the telehealth and self-management with those recent FDA changes to the laws about mifepristone especially, then this is just to bring up the, just bring it up as something to have on your radar. Expect to see it in your local emergency department. If you're at a hospital that provides any OBGYN services, you probably should expect to see this case at least a couple times a year, even if you're at a small hospital. Or just even a hospital with an emergency department. Well, yeah, exactly. So yeah, you should expect to see this at least a couple times a year, even at a small hospital, because there will be more and more women skipping skipping ultrasounds at the time of their abortion because they're doing self-managed abortions. Yeah. And I think that this case, the ER provider, when he sent her home the first time, was probably biased towards thinking that if she'd had these medicines administered, that there had been an ultrasound and a determination of the location of the pregnancy. But you know, these medicines can be administered before anything's visible ultrasound anyway. So even in the context of when somebody goes to in-person care, if they're only four weeks there's not going to be anything on ultrasound mm-hmm. and yeah. and then it may not have any effect on an ectopic that's still growing. And so they come back in two weeks and they have an ectopic pregnancy. So, yeah. So something to be aware of yes. and something we'll probably see more of in the coming years than we have in the past. So there's a lot of recent literature that we need to catch up on from the last couple of months. We've been talking about emergencies and other things and we skipped over some important literature that we need to do. And we still have the eponyms issue coming up soon. So all that hopefully in the next couple of episodes. Yeah, just got to get our our 
friend who's also a lover of eponyms to come chat. He's with excited. Us. The problem with him is he may need like three episodes, but <laughs> I think we can handle it. All right. Well, the thinking about OBGYN website will have links to things we talked about today, and then we'll be back in a couple of weeks. Thanks for listening. Find us online at thinkingaboutobgyn.com. Be sure to subscribe. Look for new episodes every two weeks.